Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Locke, honey, I'll have supper in just a few minutes. Why don't you come wash up? Five seconds remaining, Marianne. We need an answer. Oh, um, oh dear. Just a minute, Ma. It's, um, it's... Oh, I'm so sorry, Marianne. It looks like we're out of time for tonight. But we'll be back next week with another episode. What was that? What are you saying, hon? Oh, God. Mr. Sanford is hurting Mrs. Lindsley. Her head. Call an ambulance. Lock? What? Oh! On January 23rd, 1974, Locke McCormick watched as his neighbor, Athalia Poncel Lindsley, was murdered on her front steps. The bright afternoon sun cast a glare on the pool of blood beneath her. Behind her white adobe mansion, her killer quietly climbed over the stone wall and disappeared. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Athalia Poncel Lindsley, who was brutally murdered on the front steps of her own home. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Today, we're taking a close look at the amazing life and gruesome death of Athalia Poncel Lindsley. Athalia lived the life of a celebrity. She grew up in oceanfront mansions, made a name for herself among New York models and actresses, and charmed a string of high-society suitors. Later on, she became a career woman and took an interest in local politics, with aspirations of taking a legislative seat of her own. In her final years, she sparked a heated feud with her neighbors, married a man after just months of knowing him, and uncovered a gross misuse of municipal funds. Her gruesome murder captivated her community and left a legacy that exposed the very same municipal incompetence and corruption that she had worked tirelessly to expose. Athalia's story unfolded like the life of a massive star. She was the burning, luminous light at the center of every room, and she met the fate of a blazing supernova, with a remarkable death that echoes through the hearts of the residents of St. Augustine, Florida. But even stars have humble beginnings. Athalia's parents, Margarita Gardner and Charles Fetter, met around 1915, on the beautiful Isla de Pinos, or Island of Pines. The island lay 60 miles off of Cuba's southeastern coast and was a popular destination for American expatriates and tourists. It was named for the tropical pine forest that covered much of the island. 
The two met when Margarita visited Isla de Pinos. They hit it off right away and married in July of 1916. Athalia Ann Fetter was born a year later, on July 25, 1917. Two years later, her sister Geraldine was born. On the island, Charles Fetter ran a string of lucrative business operations, and Margarita took care of the girls. By all accounts, they lived a happy life, surrounded by wildlife, and only steps away from the beach. Unfortunately for the Fetters, the already tense political relationship between the U.S. and Cuba began to destabilize in the early 1920s. Lines drawn by the Platt Amendment in 1901 had not clearly established which country controlled Isla de Pinos, and both sides had made efforts to establish control. In 1924, Margarita Fetter and her friend Harriet Wheeler began lobbying Washington to defend the island, but their efforts were in vain. Anti-American sentiment on the island escalated, and for the Fetters, culminated in the arrest of Charles Fetter in 1926, when Athalia and Geraldine were nine and seven, respectively. Good evening. Can I help you, gentlemen? Charles Fetter, you're under arrest on charges of sedition. Turn around. What? What is the meaning of this? Charles was charged and convicted, but then was pardoned. When he was released, the family left the island for Jacksonville, Florida, to a mansion that the Fetters would call home for nearly 50 years. Athalia and Geraldine had comfortable lives in Jacksonville. They developed a network of friends and attended private school in nearby St. Augustine. Throughout the years, the family took regular holidays to Toledo, Ohio, to visit Margarita's family. It's likely that it was on one of these trips that Athalia met her first husband, Richard Hyman. Oh, Annie, don't you just love the holidays? Maybe, but I could do without all these parties. I'd rather be with Nana and Pampa. I know what you mean, but... You know how mom can be. She just wants to spend time with old friends. I don't think that's so bad. Whatever you say. Who's that over there? He keeps looking over at you. I haven't the slightest. Well, he's coming this way. Excuse me, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think we've been acquainted. I'm Richard Hyman. And you are? Thoroughly disinterested. Annie! <laughs> I can appreciate your honesty. Annie, is it? Athelia Ann Fetter. And this is my sister, Geraldine. And if she's not sorry, I'll be sorry for her. Now, if you'll pardon me, Richard, I'm going to get a little punch. Is she even old enough to drink the punch? <laughs> she's getting water. She just says that to sound older. She's only 15. And how old does that make you? 17. What does it matter? You can't be much older than I am. Well, you're right about that. You said fetter, didn't you? That makes you Margarita's daughter? My mom mentions her all the time. Too bad you folks don't come to Toledo more often. I don't expect I will either. I'm going to New York as soon as school's finished. Is that right? I'm going to be a model. Well, Athalia Fetter, I'll be at the front of the line to buy your first magazine cover. <laughs> For you, Richard, I might just sign it. Please, call me Dick. The two had a whirlwind of a relationship. They married on the 16th of June, 1936, when Athalia was only 18. Two years later, just after Athalia's father died of an unknown illness, they divorced. 
You're not going. I told you all along I wanted to go to New York, Dickie. I've been telling you that since day one. I am going. And all that's left to decide is whether or not you're coming with me. Jesus, Athalia, your father just died. Don't you think your mother needs you? Your sister? You don't care about anyone. I'll tell you what I think, Dickie. I think my mother's a strong woman. I think that my sister's a strong woman. I think I'm a strong woman. And I think that you are a weak, pathetic man with no ambitions and no future. Athalia. I'll send for my things once I'm settled. I'll have a lawyer mail you the divorce papers. Geraldine, who recently had graduated from high school, had high aspirations, too. So in late 1937, the sisters set their dreams into action and took off for New York City. Newly single and then in her 20s, Athalia was an independent young woman with big dreams and big ideas. She had a natural charisma and was beautiful and intelligent to boot. She was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed bombshell, and she was quickly signed under the John Robert Powers Agency under the name Athalia Poncel. At age 24, Athalia sang in the ensemble in a Broadway production of Viva O'Brien and performed in other Broadway productions as well. Athalia was an instant media hit, not only for her talent and her beauty, but for her allegedly scandalous love life. In 1942, one gossip rag reported that she allegedly left a Lieutenant F. Baylor waiting for her at the altar. Another linked her romantically with a Mr. Ken McSarran, a famed stage manager and known eccentric, who ate only eggs. Hmm, weird. Ooh, you got that right. Oh, later, Athalia pursued a relationship with Joseph Kennedy Jr., John F. Kennedy's older brother. Supposedly, Joseph proposed to Athalia before he was deployed to serve in World War II. Unfortunately, their relationship was cut short. Hello? Athalia? Oh, thank the Lord. I didn't think that you'd be home. Kathy? Is that you? What's wrong? I... Father just called. I didn't, well... I didn't want you to hear from somebody else. Kathy? It's Joe. He was on a mission, and... And his plane... I... Don't really know the details to be truthful, but he... He's not coming home. I see. Um, thank you. Thank you for telling me, Kathy. I'll let you go be with your family then. Goodbye. <laughs> oh. oh, Joey. <laughs> the loss must have been devastating to Athalia. It's likely that her later interest in politics was influenced by her ties with the Kennedys, along with her own mother's political efforts during Athalia's childhood. During her time in New York, Athalia developed a wide network of connections. Among her high society friends were politicians, artists, writers, socialites, producers, directors, and more. Through the modeling agency, she partnered with Chevrolet as a Chevy girl, and she became a feature in ad campaigns for Listerine toothpaste and Cremel shampoo. She was even featured in Life magazine in 1945. Read all about the boys abroad. The Axis powers admit defeat, but is the war really over? Read all about it in the Daily Mail. Only in the Daily Mail. Oh, I wish they'd stop printing things like that. 
Can't we celebrate for a little while? That'll be ten cents, little miss. Let's see here. Aha! There you are. And there's your magazine. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, miss. Here, Margie, look at this. Miss Athalia Poncel, another divinely beautiful powers girl. Oh, she is, isn't she? She is lovely. Another divinely beautiful powers girl who has discovered the remarkable beautifying action of Cremel shampoo. You know, I heard Athalia Poncel was engaged to a millionaire. What was his name? Kennedy? Oh, Edith, you don't really believe gossip like that, do you? Well, so what if I do? After a decade spent making a name for herself as New York's face and figure gal, Athalia decided to return home to Jacksonville, Florida in 1947. She was entering her 30s at the time, which would have meant the end of her modeling career. During her time in Jacksonville, she did some traveling and became involved in her community. In the late 1950s, by then in her early 40s, Athalia met and married a man named Charles H. Bloom. He owned a real estate business, which she sometimes helped him run. Through Bloom, she developed an interest in real estate and became an agent in her own right. Other than their shared real estate career, little is known about the couple, except that they didn't last. By the time the two divorced in 1962, Margarita Fetter's health was failing. Geraldine had married and was raising a family in Hawaii, where she ran an art gallery. However, Athalia was unattached and had little to occupy her time away from work, so she stepped up to care for their mother. She moved to Jacksonville, into the Riverside Avenue mansion where she had lived as a girl, and became Margarita's full-time caretaker. She took over a few of her mother's club memberships, including Daughters of the American Revolution, Americans of Royal Descent, the League of American Pen Women, and several others. She also wrote and published a book on gardening, and patented an invention designed for household convenience. Athalia was a firearms collector and enthusiast, and she began attending target practice with the Jacksonville police. One officer described her as quite a wonderful shot. She even ran for a seat in the Florida House of Representatives in 1970. Around 1972, Athalia made the move to St. Augustine. It's unclear why she decided to leave Jacksonville, given the community and the wide network of friends that she had cultivated there. In the 70s, Jacksonville's infrastructure was expanding. Since the Fetters had purchased the home in the 20s, interstate highways had been built on either side of the property. One major highway was less than a block away. Perhaps she thought it would benefit her mother Margarita if she lived somewhere quieter. The house at 124 Marine Street which Athalia and her mother would occupy in the early 1970s, was nearby St. Augustine, where Athalia had attended school as a child. It was close to Jacksonville, but benefited from being on a secluded private street. Like their previous home, the Marine Street House had a waterfront view overlooking the Matanzas River. It's worth mentioning that the Matanzas River and the stretch of coast where Athalia would be living had a dark history. In the mid-1500s, a Spanish battalion had massacred a company of French Huguenots and a fort they had built on the coast. Both the fort and the river were called Matanzas from that day on, the Spanish word for slaughter. We'll return to our story in just a moment. On Unsolved Murders, 
We explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. In the early 1970s, Athalia Poncel moved with her mother into their new house at 124 Marine Street. And save for a few unfriendly neighbors, Athalia was happy there. She had since given up her job as a real estate agent and divided her time between caring for her mother, delving into local politics and community organizations, and rescuing stray animals. Athalia had a big heart and took in dogs, cats, a goat, and even birds. She was a natural caregiver and had a warm and nurturing heart. Margarita Fetter, Athalia's mother, would die in April of 1973. While it was not unexpected, it must have been a devastating blow to Athalia. At the time of Margarita's death, Athalia had been her mother's constant companion for nearly a decade. But her future wasn't all cloudy skies. As a matter of fact, it was only a month or so later, in May of 1973, that Athalia met James Jinx Lindsley. Oh, pardon me, I have the damnedest time keeping track of my feet. Uh, Did I spill anything on you? (laughs) Nothing a little baking soda won't get out. Here, let me help you with that. You didn't hurt yourself, did you? Uh, Thankfully, I didn't. I don't think I've seen you around before. Are you new to the area? Well, yes, actually. I just closed my real estate office and moved to town to look after my mother. Real estate, huh? Funny you should mention it. I'm a realtor, too. James Lindsley. It's a pleasure to meet you, Miss, uh... Athalia. Athalia Fetter. They initially bonded over their shared interest in real estate and later discovered a mutual interest in local politics. In fact, Lindsley had served as the mayor of St. Augustine and would have been mayor at the time had his recent re-election campaign been successful. Athalia shared that she had also made a recent run for local office and planned to run again. Even though they had so much in common, the community of St. Augustine was a little surprised when the two wed just a few months later in September of 1973, when Athalia was 55 and Lindsley was 64. As it turned out, Athalia's third marriage would also be Lindsley's third marriage. Before meeting Athalia, he had been married twice before to the same woman. That's right. James and his first wife, Lillian Lindsley, had an off-and-on relationship that spanned about 10 years. While married, they spent most of their time apart. James was often at his second home in Cuba, while Lillian stayed in Florida to manage her dance studio and to raise their son, Danny. Unfortunately, the cold hand of fate would claim them both. 
Danny perished in a fatal motorcycle accident in 1966, a tragic loss for Lillian and James both. Five years later, Lillian died in a car accident on New Year's Day in 1971. Lindsley had been driving and veered off the road. Now, Lindsley was known to be a heavy drinker and also smoked heavily. However, he was never breathalyzed or required to do a blood test to determine his blood alcohol level. Well, that's probably because he was the mayor of St. Augustine at the time of the accident, and police were reluctant, if not afraid, to implicate him in a crime that could have evolved into a manslaughter case. If Lillian had any living family, they did not come forward to press charges, and her death became a tragic but passing memory. By the time Lindsley had met Athalia in 1973, he was ready for another chance at love. According to their friends and neighbors, Athalia and Lindsley seemed to be made for each other. They were seen together often, sometimes holding hands and always smiling. Athalia often accompanied Lindsley to work in the mornings and would be waiting for him at home with a hot dinner in the evenings. By all accounts, they seemed to be destined for each other. But the Lindsley marriage wasn't as perfect as it appeared. They didn't even live in the same house. Instead of moving in with her new husband, Athalia wanted to stay in her late mother's house until it sold. She was uncomfortable with the idea of leaving it empty. Perhaps she was hoping to deter burglars or a few hostile neighbors. Well, despite the combined efforts of two real estate agents, four months after their marriage, Athalia and Lindsay were still unable to sell the house. It's worth noting that by the time of her mother's death in April of 1973, Athalia had already sparked a very public feud with her neighbors, the McCormicks and the Stanfords. We'll talk more about the Stanford family patriarch, Alan Stanford Jr., later. Athalia became known for being loud and annoying and was something of a pariah in the neighborhood. Saying that she had a bad reputation doesn't quite touch the hostility directed toward Athalia. After her murder, one newspaper ran an article titled, quote, Obnoxious victim had no shortage of possible killers. That's a little harsh, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. And that wasn't the only disparaging headline that would be published. Athalia was a real firecracker, smart as a whip, but also fiercely independent in a time when being an independent woman was frowned upon. This was the Athalia that moved to St. Augustine, Florida, and she did not fit the demure, quiet socialite image that her neighbors had expected. Given how well-known the drama on Marine Street had become, it's not a big surprise that the Lindsleys had trouble selling the house. It was also well known that the Stanfords at 126 Marine Street, in conjunction with the McCormicks, who lived at 122 Marine Street, had made multiple noise complaints to the city about Athalia and her many rescued pets. Her dogs are running around making a racket all hours of the day and night. I can hardly sleep, let alone the children. They haven't been spayed. I doubt they've even had rabies vaccines. It's a safety concern. I swear, at least a couple of them have mange. Look, Alan, I can try to fast-track the complaint, but that doesn't mean... Now you look! These creatures are a danger to my children, and I know that the McCormicks have complained too. I expect that my charges will be treated seriously, and that Mrs. Lindsley will be investigated and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. (sighs) All right, 
I'll do my best, Alan. While there were some noise complaints by other residents, by all accounts, Athalia's dogs were really very sweet and always either fenced or kept in the garage. It turns out that Alan Stanford had been the subject of complaints only a few months before. He began making accusations against Athalia for allowing his dog to run loose around the neighborhood. Well, he sounds like a real hypocrite. Mm, true, but I suppose it feels different when it's your own pet. In any case, Athelia later found permanent homes for four of the seven dogs she had at the time of the complaint. In addition to noise complaints, Athelia's neighbors on either side filed civil cases against her, and Athelia often retaliated. After one legal argument with the McCormicks, Athalia trimmed all of the branches off a tree in her backyard that extended over the property line, thereby robbing the McCormicks of any shade it might have provided, and leaving them with the eyesore of a half-bare tree facing only their yard. On another occasion, the Stanfords pressed charges when Athalia's gardener accidentally mowed a strip of their lawn that bordered Athalia's property. Well, this sounds like a bunch of petty nonsense. The more I hear, the more I understand why the house at 124 Marine Street just wouldn't sell. Well, so Athalia spent the beginning of her marriage living out of her mother's house at 124 Marine Street, while Lindsley lived at his own mansion on Anastasia Island along the length of Florida's Atlantic coastline. Separated from the mainland by the Matanzas River and connected by several bridges, it functions more like an extension of St. Augustine than a separate landmass. Even though they were separated by the river, Athalia and Lindsley lived only a seven-minute drive apart. And remember, Lindsley was accustomed to being apart from his spouse. He had spent most of his previous marriage living separately from his wife. So, when you think about it, the fact that Athalia and James lived apart wasn't all that unusual, both for who they were as people and for the situation they were in. It wasn't as if they didn't spend most of their time together. They just slept in separate places. But there were other problems in their marriage, which Athalia detailed in letters to her sister, Geraldine Horton, who lived in Honolulu. Dear Geraldine, I'm at my wit's end with Jim lately. I suppose this is just the nature of a new marriage, especially after you've been married twice before. It seems we've skipped over the honeymoon phase entirely. I suppose that part is for a woman a bit younger than myself. Just the other day, I asked him to mail a check for me, and he took the darn thing and cashed it. Fifty dollars, can you believe that? He could have just asked. He's such a leech sometimes, and a liar too. He acted like he'd mailed it, as if I couldn't just go to the bank and check on it myself. Well, I did, and now he's found out. They don't call him jinx for nothing. I want you to know that... I've left everything I own to you, Geraldine. And Patricia, of course. I know you're rolling your eyes. Of course I plan to live another decade, at least. But know that Jim will not have so much as a penny should something happen to me. Don't misunderstand. I, I do love him dearly. But what use would it be to him? We're both aging. Neither of us have children, and I certainly don't expect that will change. He's well off enough on his own. Better that anything I leave behind be used to improve Patricia's future. Just to be sure, I haven't given him a key to Mama's house, and I don't plan to in the future. So Lindsley wasn't a beneficiary in Athalia's will. 
Well, he had plenty of wealth in his own right, although he apparently wasn't above stealing. Well, there were definitely road bumps, and they may have rushed into marriage, but the Lindsleys did truly have a lot in common. It's worth considering that maybe their marital problems were just that. Marital problems no different from any other married couple. The two were also under a lot of individual stress. Athalia had lost her mother in April of 1973, only a few months before she married Lindsley in September. That must have been quite a blow. And Lindsley was still reeling from losing the 1973 mayoral election, his first election loss in more than a decade. It's enough to cause tension in any relationship, let alone one that had only started seven months before. It's also likely that the community atmosphere added to Athalia's personal stress. St. Augustine was a deeply conservative town and a former Confederate stronghold where, quote-unquote, traditional values and rigid gender expectations were strictly in place. Athalia, a loud-spoken woman who wasn't afraid to cause a ruckus, just didn't fit the mold. She often advocated for better maintenance of public roads, criticized suspected corruption in local government, and regularly made bold, often true accusations against municipal officials. One such official? Her neighbor. Alan Stanford Jr. was a county commissioner for St. John's County, Florida. Athalia found out that he had been signing construction plans as an engineer, even though he had never obtained an engineering degree, let alone a license. If that's not enough, he also made $20,000 a year, $12,000 more than any other St. John's County employee, despite the fact that he'd only been there for two years. Today, Stanford would have been making over $100,000 a year, while colleagues who were in their second decade of service would make less than $45,000. Bear in mind that in the 1970s, many families only had one income, which makes the difference in salary even more problematic. It's likely that most of his colleagues were their family's sole earners, which means that the difference wouldn't be made up by a combined income. It's understandable that Athalia would be concerned about this disparity, especially when Stanford didn't possess the credentials that were required for his position. Athalia began making public accusations against Stanford in 1973 and made pointed efforts to have him removed from the Board of Commissioners. Athalia's criticism of Stanford's public persona only added more fuel to the fire of their private disputes. Remember, Alan Stanford Jr. lived right next door to her at 126 Marine Street, and Athalia's public outcry did nothing to lower neighborhood tensions. And it all came to a head on January 22, 1974, the night before Athalia's murder. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, the story continues. On January 22, 1974, Athalia Poncel Lindsley's feud with her neighbor, County Commissioner Alan Stanford Jr., reached its tipping point. Quiet down now. This meeting of the St. John's County Commission will now come to order. Now, Mrs. Lindsley, I believe you were the first to arrive. Would you like to address the commission? Yes, I absolutely would. Sir, is this really necessary? She's crazy. She's just going to waste our time. I understand your position, Alan, but it's part of the job. 
We can't very well call ourselves civil servants if we refuse to hear from civilians. <sighs> I'd like to draw the Commission's attention to a grave miscarriage of civic duty perpetrated by Mr. Alan Stanford. Here we go. At the commission meeting, Athalia made accusations against Stanford's character and suitability for his position. She had been interviewing employees whom Stanford had fired, and had also been in communication with residents who live near an experimental project that depended heavily on Stanford's construction of a new road. My complaints are in reference to the Cabbage Road project, which Mr. Stanford is supposed to have overseen. The road has been open for less than two months, and it's already in shambles. It's virtually impossible to drive over. As it happens, I went over that very same road today. I'm not finished. I've also been speaking with residents, some of whom are here with me tonight, along with your own employees, Commissioner. If this project is truly meant to prepare the soil for trees, why haven't I seen a speck of fertilizer? In fact, all I have seen is garbage. The city has been dumping piles of it next to the ruined road, and it stinks. It's drawing flies into the neighborhood, and it's making people sick. Quiet. Quiet now. Mrs. Lindsley, what exactly is your point? My point is that this project is a sham. The road is a mess. The pavement is only one inch thick. Now that's not true. I measured it myself. Mr. Stanford, did you know that engineers adhere to a six-inch standard of thickness when paving? Not this again. The road is four inches thick, Mrs. Lindsley, and I know that because I oversaw its progress myself. For all your experience, it'd be just as well if a child had overseen it. What qualifications do you have, Alan? They must be damn good for all the money you're making. Settle down, everyone. Quiet down. The county employee who had testified alongside Athalia was fired the next day, supposedly for shabby work. But that wasn't enough to save Stanford. On the afternoon of January 23, 1974, an hour before Athalia's murder, Stanford was visited at his office by two representatives from the Florida Board of Occupational Regulations, the board had been notified, unsurprisingly, by Athalia, who had sent them the following letter. We feel it our duty to inform of the apparent malpractice of a man who appears to be passing himself off as a certified engineer. He signs county legal documents as the county engineer, when, as far as we can ascertain, he has no engineering degree in any field. This seeming chicanery casts a shadow on the Professional Engineering Society of the state of Florida, comparable to a quack practicing medicine. By bringing this to your attention, we hope it can be investigated and rectified. It turned out that Stanford's misrepresentation of his public position, which in this case included his lack of qualifications and statements overestimating the thickness of the road, was a violation of Florida law. Stanford couldn't afford to lose his job. Despite his high salary, he had accumulated no savings. He lived in a large, expensive house and acted as the sole provider for his wife and their two daughters. The likelihood of Stanford picking up another job in his field was slim to none. While he had some experience as a mechanical engineer during his time in the military, he had never obtained an engineering degree. There was a growing public campaign against him which was published in newspapers all over the county. Alan Stanford Jr.'s life was in turmoil. 
and Athalia had started it all. The day after the commission meeting was a normal day for Athalia. On January 23, 1974, she had accompanied her husband of four months, James Lindsley, to his real estate office on nearby St. George Street. When they first met less than a year earlier, the two had bonded over their shared interest in real estate. However, on January 23rd, the newlyweds had made plans to play a little hooky. It was part of their weekly ritual to take a day off to spend together. So instead of working, they drove to Jacksonville to run a few errands and do some shopping. Now that's a sweet little dress, don't you think? It couldn't be any sweeter than you. <laughs> Stop. Really, though, wouldn't it look nice with my cream cardigan? You know the one. I think I'd have to see it in person to know for sure. And just what do you mean by that? You know exactly what. Excuse me, sir. Could you wrap this up for me, please? With a big bow, if you have one? Right away, sir. And an excellent choice, might I add. <laughs> Jimmy. The two stopped at a grocer's before returning to the office. It was Chinese New Year, and Athalia wanted to celebrate with a Chinese-style dinner. She kissed James goodbye around 5.30 p.m., promising to meet him at his Anastasia Island estate after she stopped in at her late mother's house to feed the dogs. It was the last time she'd be seen alive. Athalia Ponzel Lindsley was murdered on the front steps of her home around 6 p.m. on January 23, 1974. Her neighbor's 18-year-old son, Locke McCormick, was the only witness. Call the police. No, call an ambulance first. Oh, God. There's so much blood. Come inside. Come inside, honey. We'll call. I'll call. You just sit here. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus Christ. Her head. He... He cut it off! He had been watching television in the den when he heard a series of snapping noises, like, quote, hands clapping. Locke got up to investigate and saw a man through the window. Locke described him as a white man, 40 to 50 years old, with smartly trimmed graying brown hair. He wore a white dress shirt and dark pants and had been standing with his back toward the McCormick home at 122 Marine Street. Locke shouted something over his shoulder as he ran out the door. Later in life, he claimed that he had no recollection of what he had said, chalking it up to the adrenaline rush he felt as he left the house. He ran toward Athelia's, stopping between 8 and 10 feet away. According to Locke, the man's shoulder was moving up and down, and whatever was in his hand was just out of Locke's line of sight. The man stopped abruptly and walked away slowly in a southwesterly direction, trailing blood and disappeared from view. That was when Locke saw Athalia. Officers Laro and Jansen of the St. Augustine Police were the first officers on the scene. Calling all cars. I have a 1033 in need of first responders at 124 Marine Street. 10-4, Officers Laro and Jansen responding. What are we walking into? That's an S5D, no further details. Reported as a domestic goings-on. A domestic goings-on? Jesus, I swear dispatches get more vague every day. I know what you mean. We ought to say something to Diane. Eh, don't bother her. She's busy enough. 
Copy that. Moving to location. ETA one minute. You know we're going to get there, and it's just going to be some couple fighting about what to put on TV. I know. Just last night I had a couple of folks. Oh, there it is. 124. Well, let's get this over with. Oh, Jesus, Lord in heaven! 1063, we're gonna need an ambulance, stat. And... and tell them to brace themselves. This ain't no domestic goings-on. In fact, domestic goings-on was a severe understatement. After breaking through the crowd that had been steadily gathering, police were greeted by a gruesome scene. Athalia Poncel Lindsley's body had been hacked almost to pieces. She had defensive wounds on her arm and was missing fingers on one hand. On the four steps that lead to her front door, her shoulders lay across the second step. Her head, hanging on to her neck by a flap of skin, lay on the first. But perhaps even more shocking was the sheer volume of blood they found at the scene. There were fresh splatters across the white adobe wall, as much as five feet up and four feet to the side. There were puddles of it dripping down the stairs. On the stone walkway, a steadily expanding pool of blood gathered under her body, soaking through her blue and white dress. In the eerie evening light, she looked like a bloody, broken doll. Officer Francis O'Laughlin arrived soon after the ambulance and first responders. While the blood was being washed away outside, he and Officer Laro went inside to investigate and tracked in at least one bloody footprint on their way through the house. You think they could have walked around the blood even though there was such a large pool of it? Athalia's front porch had steps going up all three sides. Since Athalia was sprawled on the east side of the front steps, the officers could have avoided her easily by using the steps on the west side of the porch. From the outset, the investigation was poorly handled. At the time, many towns didn't even have their own crime scene units. The St. Augustine police had to call the FDLE, or Florida Department of Law Enforcement, to send a state team. Unfortunately, the FDLE representatives didn't arrive until 8 p.m., And even then, only one was present. The other two would not be able to join the investigation until the next morning, as they had been in Orlando that day attending a seminar. Ironically, the seminar was on forensic evidence in homicide. O'Laughlin and Laro were at least able to determine that it was unlikely that Athalia's killer had entered her home. Other than the blood they tracked in themselves, there was no forensic evidence inside and no evidence of a break-in. Athalia had let herself in the back door, which was closer to the kitchen. She had left the keys in the lock and had dropped a bag of groceries on the kitchen floor. Investigators determined, based on where they found the keys and the grocery bag, that she had been in a hurry. While O'Laughlin and Laro looked around inside, officers outside had ordered the ambulance attendants to hose down the bloody areas on the lawn. Wait, what? Isn't that destruction of evidence? You'd think, but apparently this wasn't on the officers' minds at the time. The ambulance attendants were specifically instructed to wash away blood, quote, where it was concentrated to the left of the front door and at the bottom of the steps, unquote. Okay, 
That's more than a little suspicious. That's where the killer had left tracks during his escape. Mm. Later that evening, when James Lindsley pulled up in his green Ford Pinto, his lawyer, Robbie Andreu, had already arrived. Strangely, Lindsley only ever admitted to having three phone calls that afternoon. First, he had called Athalia once, around six, to ask her to bring a newspaper. When she didn't answer, he assumed she was outside, but soon after, he received two panicked phone calls. Hello? Oh, thank the Lord. Jim, get over to Athelia's. Something awful has happened. There are police all around the house. What? What is it? Just get over here. Wait, is Athelia okay? Lord, oh Lord, oh God, I better get my keys. Hello, Athelia? It's Jean. You've heard then? Listen, you'd better get over there. There's a big crowd around Athelia's. I I don't know what happened, but it must be something bad. Can you see her... Forget it. Just forget it. I'm on my way. Those two calls were from Athalia's neighbors, Esther Stuckey and Jean Trammell. According to Lindsley, he left his home on Anastasia Island immediately after the third phone call from Jean Trammell, suggesting that he had never called his lawyer. Maybe he stopped in at the lawyer's office on the way. It seems like everything in St. Augustine was centrally located in 1974. But it was already after 6.30 p.m., and Andreu was probably already at home. It's more possible that the police had notified him. By washing away evidence, they were already seemingly invested in covering Lindsley's tracks, if they assumed he was the killer. But even then, it's a stretch. Well, it sounds to me like Lindsley called his lawyer. Maybe he stopped at a payphone on the way to Marine Street. Well, that sounds plausible. After all, we can't pinpoint the exact time that he left his home. Stopping to make the call would only have set him back by a few minutes. Hello? Rob, it's Jinx. Listen, I need you to... Jim? For Christ's sakes, Jim, it's almost 7 o'clock. Robbie, listen. Something terrible has happened at Athalia's. I don't know what, but I need you to meet me there. In fact, it would be better if you got there before me. I don't want to walk into an investigation blind. What? Jesus, man, what did you do? Nothing. Look, I I didn't do it, and I don't know what happened, but if something happened to her, they're coming for me first. It's 124 Marine Street. Just get there as soon as you can. (sighs) Jinx, what have you gotten yourself into? On the night of January 23, 1974, the sun set early behind Marine Street. The walls of Athalia Poncel Lindsley's home were splattered with blood, thick and nearly black, against the white adobe. Police stalked around the property, disturbing evidence, while investigators, reporters, and civilians climbed over the hedges and descended on the ugly murder scene like flies. There was no moon in the sky that night, and the darkness cast by the horrific scene at 124 Marine Street stretched far over the Matanzas River, leaving shadows that wouldn't fade for another 50 years. This is where we leave the town of St. Augustine. Tune in next week when we'll be diving into the investigation, the suspects, the trial, and the St. Augustine community itself. 
which seemed to be rooting against Athalia even in death. And the story of another St. Augustine resident who might have been able to solve the case with new evidence. If only she had come forward sooner. Don't tell me. That's right. She, too, would be found dead in broad daylight with a shattered skull. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Lauren Moran and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Sammy Nye, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. 